and uh, and again, as Brian said, you know, the government mandates, the tax incentives that people get, right? And overall, mm-hmm. there's just a more conscious awareness of people uh, everywhere that EVs can be, uh, you know, a healthier, mm-hmm. uh, cleaner, uh, more economically, uh, excuse me, environmentally friendly um, product to operate. Welcome everyone to the Operation Automation Podcast by Omron, where we are talking all things factory automation. My name is Carrie Lee. I'm the product manager for Sysmax Studio, NJ NX Controllers, and NXIO. I've been with Omron for about two and a half years and have about 15 years of experience in automation. Sitting here with me is Kenny Heidel. Hi everyone, I'm Kenny Heidel and I'm a national account manager focusing on channel engagement. I've been with Omron for over three years now and have 12 years of combined factory and industrial automation experience. Kenny and I are neighbors at our Omron office and would often have conversations at the coffee machine or in the hallways where we would talk about products, new technologies and trends, and of course, the Chicago White Sox. We hope to recreate that time here in our podcast and share it with listeners so that you can learn along with us. So whether you are pouring yourself the first or fifth coffee of the day, driving to your first appointment, or walking the dog, we hope to help you start your day off right with a little fun, and hopefully you'll learn something new. So Kenny, we have a pretty exciting topic today. Do you want to give a little teaser for what we're going to talk about? It's electric. My tone deafness on my humming, right? But yes, we are going to be talking all things electric vehicles and and what's happening in the automotive market. And, and nobody better to, to discuss that with us is our, our pair of guests today. We have two guests, uh, Jeff Hall, who's our se- Senior Director of Technology and Strategic Sales, and Brian Monty, who's a Strategic Account Manager in the automotive market. So welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, so if you guys know, we always start off the podcast with the hardest questions possible. So, Brian, what is your go-to takeout food order? Sushi, all day long. Love sushi. All right. How about you, Jeff? Pizza. Now, are you Detroit-style pizza, the square, spongy stuff? I love Detroit-style pizza because I'm a Detroit homer, but I love (laughs) all pizza. There's no bad pizza. (laughs) <laughs> Jeff would eat lunch at Buddy's every day if we let him. <laughs> Buddy's future sponsor of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> My problem all is right. I like all food. I like them all, but uh, pizza comes to mind with that question, top of the mm. list. Absolutely. Can never go wrong, right? Uh, second hard-hitting question uh, for Jeff and Brian is, uh, if you have a lot of work to get done, what is your jam music choice that you're going to put on? It's Bon Jovi for me. <laughs> I grew up on All Bon right. Jovi, my first concert. So 80s hair band, Bon Jovi's definitely in the mix if I'm going to fire it up a notch. Nice. There Did you go. ever have the Bon Jovi hair? Uh, close to a mullet, but not quite Bon Jovi hair. Awesome. How about you, Jeff? Wow, that's a tough one. I, I would say Bon Jovi's up there, but probably Kiss, believe it or not. I'm an old Kiss guy. All like, right. like Rock and roll all night is still one of my favorite songs. And even my children that are, I have two that are 19 and one is 22, and they love that song because I've played it so much in their youth. <laughs> awesome. You big strutter guy? 
Oh yeah, love it. Just listened to it yesterday. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. So finally, Jeff, what's your favorite hobby? Pheasant hunting. Oh. Okay. So where I've do you been doing that hunt? since I've been a child, and with my father, and now my best friends, and I have uh, dogs, and and I travel around the country. Uh, mostly do it in Michigan, but it's a it's a hobby and a passion of mine. Awesome. How about you, Brian? Well, outside of kids is my number one hobby, it seems. <laughs> I like to build anything, you know, here uh, in the sales side. We don't do too much with our hands, but when I'm at home, I'm home improvements, build, cut, uh, do anything that I can actually use tools and uh, pretty efficient with uh, and well-rounded with my home uh, improvement skills. It's going to all those automotive plants too, right? That's, <laughs> it, it inspires you, right? To to build something of your own, right? No doubt. So Brian and Jeff, while this has all been very interesting, we have you here to talk about some topics where we consider you guys as subject matter experts from an automotive industry. You both have a ton of experience um, with automotive and we wanted to talk about some of the exciting things that are happening in automotive with electric vehicles. And I guess to kind of kick it off, you know, you guys are dealing with our customers every day. What kind of challenges from a production standpoint, do you see our customers and manufacturers have transitioning to make to making an EV as opposed to combustion engine? I'll start it off, and then I know Brian will comment because we have uh, very similar views on the topic. You know, there's a lot of challenges. This is a, a new uh, set of vehicle platforms for manufacturers, so they have plant capacity uh, challenges, right? They have to make sure they have places to build the vehicles and people to build build the vehicles. Uh, they have to train new skill sets to their uh, labor force because there's new technologies being deployed. Uh, new platforms mean new and different manufacturing processes, right? And there's a whole uh, piece of that that becomes a capital outlay because they're still making traditional internal combustion engines. So that variability becomes very complex for them and uh, very costly, but needed based on the market trends currently. And I would comment on that, that the volumes are very different, right? You don't have the historical estimates of how many of a certain model vehicle you're typically going to build in a year. So they have to be very scalable and flexible. What might start out as low volume, a demand might speak, uh, come up and peak very quickly. And then they have to ramp up and adjust to how do we handle the difference of volume and production maybe retooling, maybe manpower and all the other things Jeff talked about, but uh, they don't have the historical data to tell you what these volumes are going to be and what the sales are going to look like. It's really just a guess in the beginning, right? Yeah. Do you see them on certain production lines? Obviously, they all kind of have physical constraints of how big their factories are, right? But do you, do you see them trying to build areas that are just focused on EV or just, or even potentially having lines and kind of say, you know, to, from a simplified term, right, Monday and Tuesday, we're going to make this EV model and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're going to go back on that same line, but make a combustion engine. I think it depends on the platform, Kenny. If you look at a <laughs> plug-in hybrid, for instance, many of those platforms <laughs> are common to uh, an existing platform for with internal combustion engines. And then <laughs> so there can be some crossover there on the existing lines, even though they obviously have to add stations or sections. If it's a complete battery electric vehicle, that's a completely different line because mm -hmm. the whole vehicle structure is different. 
And so they would either put in a plant for that based on the volumes that they're projecting, or they would put a line in an existing plant specifically dedicated to that battery electric vehicle. Gotcha. Interesting. So a couple different approaches, I guess, depending on type and volume, right? Sure. Absolutely. Um, the second question, you know, obviously with the the emergence of the EV and more and more manufacturers coming out with their own individual models, even different types of models within that manufacturer. Are you uh, seeing any collaboration between these different manufacturers on kind of best production practices? How do how do we optimize and and make get the most out of our production lines for the on the EV side? On collaboration, you know, there's I, I would say the primary place you're seeing that is in the battery manufacturing piece of EVs. If you look, uh, you know, not too long ago, the domestic auto manufacturers and many of the global manufacturers were talking about outsourcing their batteries, you know, to the existing manufacturers like LG Chem and Panasonic and others. Now most of them are going down the vertical integration path. So they will be forming joint ventures and partnerships with battery companies, uh, those same battery companies and some new battery companies, and there's new ones emerging all the time. You know, you look at what Ford's doing in Kentucky and Tennessee with investing with SK Innovation and with uh, GM and LG Chem, and you know, the list goes on, and there's a number of European companies forming their JVs as well. So a lot of collaboration going on uh, between different uh, companies in the supplier community along with the uh, actual manufacturers of the vehicles. And of course, there's a lot of technology development going on between manufacturers, and that's been going on for a long time, just because the cost of change is so immense in the automotive industry. And the technology now is shifting, not just as it relates to EVs, but to just multiple technologies in terms of, look how electronic cars have become internally, right? You know, you have to be a, a, a cell phone expert to drive your car anymore. And, you know, so I have to have my kids teach me most of the features on my damn car. So. I think that, you know, the JVs will continue, the collaboration will continue. But again, where we've seen it the most is probably on the battery side of the business. And I would agree, including the, the powertrain side of that, what we refer to as today in the electric vehicle or the battery vehicle, the skate, right? Or the skateboard is the reference of the drivetrain system, mm -hmm. um, where a typical hybrid, you know, is an intermix and they're going to handle that additional piece of that on the EV side. But what's changing in powertrain is uh and the battery side is very different right that you're you're building a a base that's an electric base and then building the rest of the vehicle on top of it in a partnership is uh very often happening that you might uh, not only third party out the battery but you might buy the whole skateboard or the platform mm. chassis side so Jeff, you mentioned like a shift towards vertical integration. What What's kind of the impetus for that as opposed to using, like you said, the original thought of using third-party uh, battery suppliers? I would assume and, and uh, probably pretty accurately, I, I, I hope anyways, that it's financially driven, right? Because okay. it's financially driven and quality driven. I mean, you know, it's like internal combustion engines, right? Sometimes in low volume vehicles or uh, commercial vehicles, those companies will outsource the engine manufacturing. But, you know, uh, all automakers around the world, the major automakers, all make their own engines, right? And they do that for scale, they do that for quality, and they do that for economic reasons because they've been able to scale their operations uh, in order to be able to make money in those volumes of those products and make that a separate profit center uh, underneath the overall vehicle. 
and so I think it, the same thing is probably the driving factor is the volumes of EV pickup and the, the knowledge that this market is here to stay, mm -hmm. that uh, they're trying to have better control on their cost. And let's face it, less reliant on outside suppliers that may have other interests that don't coincide or don't support the interest of the manufacturers themselves. I think much more control over your production as well, for mm -hmm. sure, right? Mm -hmm. Anything you build that you can build yourself and you can control the production process uh, without potentially waiting on another vendor to supply product to you, uh, maybe especially in this supply chain market yeah, right now that's, uh, that's a big factor to you know control what you build by building it yourself might be a benefit mm -hmm. that was going to be my exact comment too <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing that comes to my mind when i hear that they're each going to make their own battery any sort of like standardization for charging things you know we see those charging stations at grocery stores i wonder if there's going to be a separate one for each manufacturer or do you guys see that kind of a standard methodology moving forward. Well, we, we're going to hit the touch on the regulation side of things and and some of our further conversations, I think. But there's, is it in place yet? I don't know the exact answer, but will there be regulation? <laughs> Absolutely, um, especially I think when it comes to power, right? Mm -hmm. um, the infrastructure side of that is going to be important. Yeah. There's all kinds of regulation for the infrastructure side of any power or energy. And uh, we'd have to do a little bit of research to find out what specifically it is, but I, I would guarantee there is regulation wrapped around that. Yeah, and you talk about standardization, so that's a little separate from regulation. Regulations will drive the standardization and to build the infrastructure around the nation, around the world, mm -hmm. ultimately, much like their standard size fuel nozzles, right? It will have to be a standardized plugging, uh, plug mechanism, plug standards, dimensions, all that, so that uh, you can truly build an infrastructure because otherwise, you know, every single company is gonna have a charging station somewhere. And right. So you see a world someday that maybe instead of gas stations, you have charging stations, right? Or maybe you have one gas pump or two gas pumps and 20 charging stations, but for that to work, there there would have to be standardization. So I there's, you know, there's, you know, there's consortiums, there's uh, trade organizations, there's uh, government standards groups, automotive standards groups, all working on that. Awesome. So, you know, we keep seeing more and more commercials and it seems like EV is top of mind. Everybody's coming out with, you know, all the major manufacturers are putting commercials out about what's coming as far as EV. What would you guys have seen as the tipping point to have more manufacturers investing in EV? Yeah, I think that's a, there's multiple things. I, I think again, the, the regulation is is a big one, right? When uh, when there's regulation in place, any industry has to follow or is smart to follow, because mm -hmm. that's where money is sometimes over and above the regulation. I think there's a lot of auto manufacturers that care about sustainability and green energy and a better globally. Uh, eco-friendly environment so those are factors as well and i think the auto manufacturers do care about that but i, I my opinion is regulation is a is a leading driver you know regulation changes and we change some of the standards for fuel economy and uh you have to adapt to that it, it gives a little bit of a push into driving mm -hmm. that that market for sure yeah i'll add on to that you know, government regulations or mandates are always going to drive a market. Uh, you look at Europe, for instance, where they're trying to, you know, disallow any petrol or diesel-based 
vehicles after 2035. You know, whether that's achievable or not, that remains to be seen. Norway is leading the world in its adoption of EVs, right? They, I think their sales last year were 92% uh, EVs. So, you know, that there's the visibility of those uh, other regional areas around the globe uh, adopting the technology quickly. I also think uh, that the automakers have learned that and, and now understand they can actually make money and I believe maybe even more money on EVs mm -hmm. than they can on uh, internal combustion engines ultimately as they scale their operations because if you look at the content, the complex uh, content of a powertrain of, of an uh, internal combustion engine versus an EV, uh, there's you know there's a lot of processes, a lot of parts that don't exist on an EV that that do on an internal combustion engine, right? So when they scale their operations and, and you're charging the same amount or more for EVs that have a lot less content or manufacturing complexity, um, I think there's a huge windfall there from a profit standpoint. Let's face it, that's what everybody's in business. So I do think that's becoming uh, a piece of it that has helped. And uh, and again, as Brian said, you know, the government mandates, the tax incentives that people get. And overall, mm -hmm. there's just a more conscious awareness of people uh, everywhere that EVs can be, uh, you know, a healthier, mm -hmm. uh, cleaner, uh, more economically, uh, excuse me, environmentally friendly um, product to operate. Yeah, I remember in my career, God, probably 15 years ago-ish, the big, the big buzz and boom was we were building ethanol plants. We're going to build mm -hmm. them everywhere, <laughs> and we were going <laughs> to use corn as a primary means of fuel for the ethanol and. I was working with all kinds of customers in the Detroit market that were in that industry, uh, working at, you know, how do we do that, the machinery to produce it, building the plant infrastructure. So uh, that was a big boom for a while. And it, that's been multiple different uh, things, but they're always looking at different, more efficient, eco-friendly, cost-effective alternatives to combustion engine or yeah, and it seems too like I, I kind of almost like your cell phone too, right? Initially, when when EV cars came into the market, they were probably so expensive. Where the battery technology was in you know the last five ten years, those technology advances from the different manufacturers have been so vast and great that it's kind of put it on par with on, on the profitability side, similar to what you mentioned, Jeff. Like it's put it on par now with with traditional combustion engines not to mention you have you know you talked about less components right that's less components they have to manufacture as potential spare parts so just kind of trickles down it does and you know i don't believe they're there yet i think they'll get there though but i mean i think they see the writing on the wall where they can get there now that the technology continues to develop and evolve and and you know they have more choices of suppliers now too right so they can do more competitive bidding and and you know it's it's be, it's being um, it's becoming, I should say, its own its own market. And I think mm -hmm. there's another factor of the concern of, you know, can we repair these vehicles? Do we have an infrastructure of repair and service stations that can handle uh, a battery electric? Are people concerned are, or if you get an accident, are they going to explode? I think over the course of the last 10 years, we've kind of put out a lot more better messaging on how that market's changed and yes, the infrastructure's there. And just like Jeff said, now that you have so many different companies playing in that space and, and they're the big ones that 
you trust that have been doing this for a very long time that yes they're going to have a network to service that vehicle and yes that that battery is going to stay on the road for 10 years or or whatever that life expectancy is and and they're going to support it if it doesn't absolutely absolutely another another area to kind of touch on too in this whole transition i think is obviously the the automotive um, industry as well as the ecosystem of suppliers that that feed up to the automotive manufacturers is is huge uh, how have how have you guys seen that ecosystem and those traditional tier type suppliers change their business methodologies or their focus as as EV has become more prevalent yeah I have a particular customer of mine I won't mention any names that you know it's an investment you need to is it a gamble maybe that you're going to decide as a tier supplier that hey this ev thing's coming and i'm going to invest in it and then there's the other customer that says no you know what i think combustion engine are going to stick around for a very long time so i'm just going to keep heading down that path but i've seen some very specific examples of hey in the next five to ten years i'm believe that uh, 60% of my business minimum is going to be in the EV space and we're going to ramp up design um, and manufacturing of a heavy fleet of EV components and mm -hmm. scale with that uh, with that plan. So I think it depends on the supplier, but is it is an investment and you're taking a prediction and an estimate of what you hope the market ends up like i think we're a bit safer now that we know there's real evidence of what direction this is going in especially mm -hmm. by announcements by the bigger guys and the investments they're going to spend in the ev space i think there's a better comfort factor that the tier suppliers know that hey this is happening because <laughs> this guy this guy and this guy is already committed to it so i better adapt and uh, rethink my plan of the type of components that i'm going to supply in the future yeah, almost like a, you better get on board because that train is uh, that train is going and it's going strong, right? There's another aspect to it as well. So Brian mentioned the tier one suppliers, right? There are manufacturing parts that go into the EVs, and they certainly have huge investments and decisions to make, and they're making them. Obviously, if you look at how they're diversifying in their base into the EV space, <clears throat> it's very significant. And there's another piece of that is the machine builders that supply equipment to the uh, tier ones or the manufacturers themselves. If you looked at a, a traditional manufacturer of engine lines or uh, for internal combustion engine, right? Heavy, heavy manufacturing, metal turning, drilling, uh, honing, all those operations, right? Well, much of much of that goes away, right? So those companies that have made a living for, you know, 100 years, right, mm -hmm. doing those kind of operations, they have to scale those operations back because many of those operations don't exist in the EV space. And I know one particular that's a very large global manufacturer of, uh, of metal uh, turning or, or powertrain equipment, let's say, machinery, mm -hmm. that is now, uh, you know, purchased and building their capability for winding machines, right? Because they're all the coils mm -hmm. you need now and all the electrical windings that are involved in uh, electronic transmissions or e-car uh, transmissions, EV uh, motors and those kinds of things. So. It, it's, uh, Kenny mentioned earlier, the trickle-down effect. It's a trickle-down effect in every aspect of the auto industry because, again, it's a different process. There are different products, and there's a lot of change that significantly impacts uh, many of these companies. Again, a machine builder that has this expertise and the infrastructure built around 
something that's been uh, extremely high volume and high capital expense for that many years, they have to relook at their business, rescale their business, and and you know there's challenges there to doing that, right? Because you're always you're always making some predictions. You're always Mm-hmm. Uh, until until it gets really running to scale and it gets running in some type of uh, predictable uh, pace, it's an uh, interesting dynamic to watch. And we see it every day with our customers of uh, changing their uh, direction or changing, let's say, opening up their minds to what other things they can manufacture to offset the loss or the potential loss of their traditional business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's quite a bit of change. And whenever I think of change, I think of opportunities for innovation. So what have you guys seen, you know, with our customers or trends within the industry that, um, you know, how is automation, are there any trends that are kind of help enabling this transition? Yeah, I think I can comment on that. I mean, we're following industry 4.0 and some of the big buzzwords we talk about, right? <laughs> IoT, all these different things we hear, the buzzwords and uh or maybe the acronyms, but I think flexible manufacturing is a key, right? We need to be able to adjust and maneuver. And when we looked at a historical assembly line for automotive, and you go all the way back to the beginning where we're pulling that on a rope and then it becomes a chain conveyor, but automotive plants had to be built to be in a straight line. <laughs> you know, the, the facilities <laughs> were picked and built to have a very long connected line. And then today's world and where vendors or manufacturers like us come into play today with AMRs and Cobotics and other smarter technologies for connected factory, the ability to make your mine line modular, move it around, bring material to the line versus everything have to be connected. It's a huge change and it allows them to handle the different volumes of short run, high run, maybe even intermix multiple vehicles in one plant. Um, And it's a huge benefit, but those are the type of uh, technologies that are out there today that are kind of a game changer. And, uh, but flexible manufacturing and being uh, able to adapt kind of on the fly potentially is a, Mm -hmm. is a huge piece. Yeah, Brian nailed it. I mean, flexibility, right? And all the solutions that automation providers um, can uh, supply to their customers, help them and help them in that uh, flexibility uh, drive because it's not only multiple vehicles, but the technologies within the vehicles. And you look at, uh, there's a term that people like to use called mass customization. Mm-hmm. Right? We all like our vehicles in a certain way, a certain color, a certain option package and you know it's becoming more and more diverse right and uh, and and it then it varies globally and it varies uh, even regionally within certain countries of what you know you don't need uh heated seats in the south right necessarily <laughs> right. and uh, so i think the, the you know the flexibility is probably the biggest single key to being able to allow manufacturers to achieve the targets they need to because they have so many more manufacturing considerations now than they've ever had and that's going to continue and there's there's other factors that go on top of that too as well what what country do you build them in you know when you're mm-hmm. looking for a lower cost vehicle versus the the cadillac or something with the higher quality standards where in the world do you build those how do you how do you mm-hmm. look at the plants you already mm-hmm. have where you can you have production cost or labor costs that can meet the market to stay competitive for the particular type of vehicle. 
But I think to Jeff's point, you know, we have plan examples where you're building over 4,000 vehicles in a day. Every one of them is pre-ordered and every one of them is different. And it could be down to the stitching on the seat. So uh, think about how they have to adapt and be able to be flexible, right? Well, and on top of that, right, I'm sure that, like the automotive industry is no stranger to uh, labor issues in our current market today, right? So that's kind of where automation can come into play as well. There's those historical activities that potentially uh, a worker did, right? And unfortunately, within the labor shortage, right, we just might not have the same pool of workers that we had previously, or we're trying to train that pool of workers to do other higher value activities. That's kind of where automation really helps enable those customers to like jeff said and, and brian said completely be be flexible but still being able to to hit production goals and and, and things like that yeah you made a good point though kenny and it's something that sometimes is a, a difficult subject to broach but you know there's an impression uh out there that automation replaces people and it doesn't it augments the workforce because right. the workforce is in such great need right now with people with multiple uh, skills that they don't have that uh, the, you know if we can have automation do tasks that people do we'll get deployed to do other tasks that are uh, more challenging or that can't be done by automation or you know technician yeah. roles or servicing roles i mean there's there's lots of examples and so that mm -hmm. was a really good point that yeah. you know, it's uh flexibility is great but uh, it just just labor availability and creating that labor availability and redeploying those resources so that you know that companies can achieve their targets because let's face it none of us are finding all the people we need and manufacturers to comment and add to that too the health and safety piece is a mm -hmm. big piece of that movement and initiative you know they're looking at ergonomics and they want to keep their mm -hmm. workers safe and and companies are using virtual reality to you know ergonomically lay out their plants and and tying in that flexible manufacturing piece of laying out the plant different than they would have in the past, but the health and safety thing for uh, those mundane tasks or what might be hurting people and taking them out of work over and above the labor shortage is a, another piece where automation comes in very valuable. To, I guess, bring it back full circle, right? If you now have workers that maybe had traditionally been part of combustion engine assembly lines, right? Doing a certain task on that line. Now you're asking them to change what they're used to and manufacture a different type of platform and vehicle altogether with an EV. So are those manufacturing processes, you know, they're different. So it kind of probably allows the, the the manufacturers the opportunity to say, hey, is this a better opportunity for us to to use an automated machine to do that action? Or is it something that we should we can provide an opportunity to that that worker to train them up on how to how to manufacture that different process? And there's a lot of analytics and AI and tools of this smarter factory that come into play with that, too. Like what operator is trained and capable of running or doing this piece of a assembly or an application you know those are mm -hmm. the big scale automotives they're looking at all of that hey operator a doesn't show up for work today who mm -hmm. else in the plant or in the company can do his job and now you're talking a job where you need to retrain uh, in the first place already but train on a new skill set uh, but the skill skill level is going up in automation uh, you know it's going to be a task with a little bit more 
skill. You might run a line instead of doing that mundane job, but uh, mm -hmm. reallocating those resources into a into a better job that could help them out ergonomically is one mm -hmm. piece of it for the health and safety side, but it's to empower them. It's not to replace them. Yep, exactly. So, you know, I've heard us talk quite a bit about, you know, automotive industry kind of leading the way with automation. We kind of even know that, right? PLCs, the history of them kind of came from automotive. I heard you talk about um, flexible manufacturing and things. Another concept that's top of mind in manufacturing is quality, right? And we're typically used to very high quality standards within automotive. And so can you talk a little bit about how quality um, standards may be shifting with this new type of um, vehicle going to EVs? Yeah, I think that I'll, I'll comment on that, that the, uh, the quality standards are going up quite a bit. So you have electronic components, electrifications, circuit boards, and a lot more technology, uh, critical components versus potentially the combustion engine. So um, we've already seen there's a need, you know, high quality standards previously because there's regulation wrapped around it. Those vehicles uh, cradle to grave when the material comes in, when they get assembled all the way through potentially 10 years plus on the road that you need to track recalls and quality controls and be able to service uh, anything that goes wrong during that during that time window but in the electric vehicle side it's higher what what was okay in the 90s potentially quality control hoping to get to a hundred they're looking for hundred percent quality control oh. and traceability um, where you know companies like Omron are inspection systems for circuit boards potentially x-ray technology of course sensors vision and some of the other products we do but I, I believe for sure the uh, the quality control is going to go up substantially. Don't know exactly what the regulation to that's going to be yet, but for sure we're going to be a key player in that space. And uh, we've already seen a major shift um, of how we approach customers that are doing anything in the EV space. Well, this has been really interesting. I've really learned a lot. Always love listening to uh, Brian and Jeff talk, and it's fun to kind of see how manufacturing and automation is really hitting home with the things we do every day such as driving cars so really enjoyed this conversation thanks guys and uh yeah i think it was a good talk but wait 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 we can't let them leave without <laughs> trivia because there's two of them i have two trivia questions so jeff this first one will be for you because i kind of teased it a little bit with you how many electric cars were sold in the world in 2021? And your options are A, 2 million, B, 50 million, C, 6.5 million, or D, 15 million? If I had to guess, and uh, based on my extensive knowledge of the automotive world and EV market, because I read about it every single day, not, 6.5 <laughs> million would be my answer. Boom, cue the applause. <laughs> I hope you can answer what's in the U.S. and what's overseas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so Jeff knows the answer to this one, but Brian, this one is for you then. What was the first, since we are a Japanese company, what was the first Japanese electric car to be introduced in the United States? That's a tough one. 
Oh, Jeff's, I guess Jeff's, I the, Jeff's the reader. I'm not the history buff. <laughs> and he's got a few years on me, too. So he might know. <laughs> so here's, I'll, I'll give you multiple choice. I did have that uh, ready. So A, Toyota Prius. B, Honda Civic. C, Nissan Leaf. D, Mitsubishi Eclipse. Mitsubishi Eclipse. No. Nope. Incorrect. The answer, I, I guess. Two years on you, I knew the answer. Well, I got it on the second choice, I think, when I practiced, but. <laughs> correct, what correct. The Nissan Leaf is the was the first Japanese electric car, uh, fully electric car to be introduced. Oh, in the, the Eclipse was an electric. You're tricking me there. I'm correct. I threw that <laughs> one in there. Good job, though. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again. We've been, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I know uh, I learned a lot about what auto manufacturers are doing to make this transition easier and, and really start to ramp up that production. I think it's fascinating. It'll be interesting to see where it goes in the coming uh, years. Absolutely. Anyways, Thanks, awesome. guys. All right. Well, thank Thanks, you so guys. much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for joining Carrie and me for the Operation Automation Podcast. If you have topics you'd like to hear discussed on future episodes, please send them to our email address, omronnow at omron.com, with podcast idea in the subject line. Finally, all the cool things you learn on this podcast can be found at automation.omron.com. So until next time, we put the fun in factory automation. Automation.